Hey everyone, this is Brenton Powers from the Dwell on Truth show. I'm here to announce that I'm back on the radio, baby, every Sunday from 8 a.m. till 9 a.m. Get up early, like Jesus did on Sunday morning when he rose from the grave. Surely you can get up out of bed. So get up, study the Word of God, listen to reasons why you should believe, and continue to dwell on truth, because the truth will set you free. I'm Brenton Powers, and you're listening to Dwell on Truth. On today's program, we'll be dwelling on truth with Pastor David Guzik of Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. All right. Hey, David. Thank you so much for being on the Dwell on Truth show. Hi, Brent. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for agreeing to the interview. I'd love to ask you some questions about the Great Commission, missions, evangelism, discipleship, what our show is about, loving God and loving people. I know you from the mission field when we were missionaries in Europe. We first met, was the first time we met at one of those Scandinavia conferences? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Had to be at least 10 years ago, maybe more. It's either 2008 or 2009. Right. Denmark. Right. We were missionaries in Latvia for six years, and it was a, just a hop, skip, and a jump over the, the Baltic Sea to come to the Scandinavia conference, and then saw you in Sweden. Yes. And then at Santa Cruz at a men's conference. That's and, right. And then at Murrieta at a church planting conference uh, with Kevin Fitzgerald. That's right. Yes, I remember that. And where else have I seen you? Siegen, Germany at a pastor's conference. Yep. So you get around. I don't travel that much, but it seems like everywhere I go, you're there. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like I'm following you, but our paths cross from some of those conferences. You haven't been to Latvia yet, have you? I have not been to Latvia. I would be very interested in visiting those Baltic states, uh, but I have not been. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in Northern Europe and Germany. Well, a big part of it was through my wife. Uh, my wife is Swedish. She was born in Sweden. Uh, she lived most of her childhood and growing up years in Sweden, though a few of them she spent her younger years in the United States, but uh, basically grew up in Sweden. So when we got married and lived in the U.S. as a young ministry couple, uh, we had a heart for Europe. And we just developed connections because we were interested in the work of Christianity and the spread of the gospel in Scandinavia. And eventually we met up with some like-minded believers from sort of this Calvary Chapel family that we have. And we started doing a Scandinavia conference in uh, Sweden. Man, the first years must have been like in the mid-90s were the first years of it. So it's been going on a long time. Uh, And then through that, we developed a continuing heart for Europe and through some circumstances that I could talk about if you want, but it's not really necessary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our family moved over in the year 2003 to start a Bible college in a church in Germany. The city was called Siegen, Germany. And the church is there, is still there. Uh, the Bible college is no longer existing. It had a wonderful 10-year run. And we started it and were there for the first seven years of that Bible college. So uh, through that, we've developed a lot of great ministry relationships and contacts in Europe. So we just kind of continue on with those. Awesome. You're well known for being a Bible commentator. Your story is out there on YouTube with you didn't really set out to 
establish a commentary that everybody uses. You just found your teaching notes helpful. Um, having heard you in person, I, I found your teaching helpful too. A lot of great balance, I think, is what I appreciate about your teaching. Like you answered the question about once saved, always saved on your live, uh, your YouTube channel. But that's, we don't have to get into that question because you answered it really well. And I just appreciated the balance you had of the scripture teaches this and it teaches this. We don't need to deny anything that's in scripture, but just the balance of God's grace and his spirit, not by works, but but it's it's a work of God, so he gets the glory, and yet there are warnings that we need to abide in Christ. Okay, I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about that, maybe not just for teaching, but maybe for evangelism. How do you maintain a balance of presenting the gospel without making it seem like it's all up to you? You just there's a work of God, but then there's also a response that, that people need to make. You know, that's a really interesting question. I, I thank you for that, for those kind words, Brent, because I, I really believe that uh, a big charge of the uh, responsibility of being a Bible teacher is to do what the Apostle Paul said, is to rightly divide the word of truth mm-hmm. and to, to figure out how um, the whole collection of biblical truth and understanding how it fits together into something coherent. And and as we do that, we really do understand there are some passages of Scripture which emphasize more uh, God's sovereign action mm-hmm. uh, in, for example, evangelism and in the, the work of the gospel. Uh, there's other passages that seem to emphasize more human responsibility. And, and we don't take those as canceling out one another. Mm-hmm. We're, we're looking for a way to say, okay, this is how these things work together. Yeah. And when it comes to evangelism, I think it is important to see that God really has decreed, and it's in his sovereign plan, that there will be people from every tribe, every language, every people group around his throne. We have that vision from the book of Revelation. Uh, Nevertheless, he really has given human beings, us, his people, the church, so to speak, uh, that responsibility of going out into all the world and making disciples. Mm -hmm. I really like when it comes to that idea of the work that we do, whether it be in evangelism, in church planting, anything else. I appreciate what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about his work And he says, he makes this amazingly bold statement. He says that he worked harder than any of the other apostles. Can you believe that? Yeah, he's he's (laughs) like he's like, I I worked harder than James or Peter, and then which on the one hand is such an audacious thing to say, but Paul said it. But at at the same time, he immediately recognized. Just as you said, yet not I, but the work of God within me. But so the grace of God. Paul, yes, mm-hmm. he, he understood that it was, yes, he was doing the work, but at the same time, God was doing it in him. Yeah. For me, one of the helpful concepts to, to hang on to is to not expect God to work for us in the sense of instead of us. In our place. In our place. Mm-hmm. No, God is going to intend that I do the work, but he'll work in me and through me. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So the grace of God, you have some great teachings on the, the grace of God. It's past, present, future, it's sanctification, it's glorification, it's justification, not in that order, of course. But speaking of the gospel of grace, 
I wanted to give you an opportunity. We're on the air on a Christian station, but this also is going out on YouTube, and I go on a non-Christian radio station to share the gospel with non-believers as well. Would you be willing to share how you would share the gospel with a non-believer about the grace of God? What do people need to know to have just a basic grasp of what is the gospel? Well, the gospel... I find the most direct explanation of it to be found in 1 Corinthians 15, actually the same passage we were just referring to, just earlier in the chapter, where Paul very clearly says that the gospel he preached, the good news, because we should always remember that's what the word gospel means. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's good news. The good news that Paul brought was the message that Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures— He was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. The gospel essentially is the message of what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did for us at the cross and in the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So really, to present Jesus to people is uh, presenting the gospel, but it's not just presenting Jesus. Brenton, if I present Jesus, uh, the social activist to people, um, that's not the gospel. If I present Jesus, the miracle worker to people, that's not the gospel. If I present Jesus as the confronter of uh, religious corruption, uh, those are all true things about Jesus, mm-hmm. but it's not the gospel. Paul and the other New Testament writers always come back to this idea that the gospel is distinctly rooted in what Jesus did on the cross. Now, as a corollary or as an aspect of that, there really is the proclamation of the love of God and the grace of God. And this is what I mean by that, is that I don't think you can accurately preach about what Jesus or present, let's leave the word preach out of it, maybe it's just in a conversation, You can't accurately present what God has done for us in Jesus at the cross and in the empty tomb without talking about God's motive in doing that. Mm -hmm. And the Bible makes it very clear, the motive of God for that was love. And so to talk to people very surely, God loves you, God cares about you, and God has made provision, he's made a way for you to be right with him to be a part of his great, eternal, unfolding plan of the ages, to have a life that is under his blessing and goodness, both now and into eternity. God loves you and has made all those things for you, and it happens for you through the person and work of Jesus, especially what he's done at the cross and the empty tomb. Amen. Amen. So with that, the phrase, Christ died for our sins— How much of that bad news do you share with people before sharing the good news? You know, do we need to define sin? Do we need to warn about, uh, you know, the consequences of sin? Or is it just, I know you're not saying that he's just going to prepare a nice place for you. Why don't you hang out? Because there's other good places you can go to, but here's another place. And and I would say often we need to. Now, Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say absolutely in every case. Because I I find one very interesting case of evangelism in the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul seemed to make no appeal to the law, no effort to show somebody their sinfulness. There's no even direct reference to repentance um, Mm. in this situation. 
and it's with the Philippian jailer. Oh, right. You know. What must I do to be, be saved? saved? Well, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he didn't say anything about repentance. He didn't uh-huh. say anything about that. Now, why? Well, because I think the circumstances of the situation, which obviously we weren't there, we don't know the fullness of the circumstances, but mm-hmm. when you have a Roman soldier about ready to plunge a large dagger or a small sword into his abdomen and kill himself, he's at an end of himself. Yeah. He's not looking for any salvation in himself. Um, I think Paul could rightly assume that this man understood that he was lost and needed a savior. Yes. That's why he was about to actually kill himself. And that's why he asked, what do I need to do to be saved? Yes, Uh yes. So there are certain evangelistic situations that are like that, where the ground has been so prepared by previous messengers or previous aspects of what God has done in that life that we don't need to talk to people about their sin, about the need for repentance. Mm -hmm. But those, I think, are, are rather rare. For the most part, it's important for people to have a sense that they're genuinely saved, if we want to use that word, from something. Here's the thing I like to emphasize with it, that Jesus is not something or someone that's just added to somebody's life. Add some Jesus and you'll have a better life, which honestly, (laughs) that is often how the message of the gospel is presented to people today. Now, you and I know that's not really the message of the gospel, but that's how it's often presented to people. Mm-hmm. Add Jesus to your life and you'll have a better life. That's not the gospel. But instead, it's, it's that we are lost, we are blind, we are sick, we are dead. Mm-hmm. We need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. Awesome. Thank you. So how should someone respond once they've heard the gospel— and we're, we're going not just to make converts, right? The Great Commission is go make disciples. How do we then invite them to become a disciple? And uh, in a way that's obvious that it's not just a say this quick prayer and then you can forget about it. That's what happened to me when I was seven years old. Uh, but in a way where we're actually encouraging people to go on and follow the Lord as a disciple, as a learner, to get saved and then discipled. Sometimes Christians get in the trap of thinking, and and I understand why they get into this trap, but it is a trap where they're thinking, okay, I want as many people to go to heaven as possible. What's the bare minimum that a person must do in order to get to heaven? I'm going to figure out what the bare minimum is, and I'm going to encourage people to do that, that bare minimum. And then that's good, because then I can think, well, they're going to heaven. Where that's not the picture presented to us by the New Testament or the Bible at all, where our job isn't just getting people with some kind of bare minimum to escape hell and go to heaven. The idea is Jesus is in the world to make disciples. Yeah. Uh, There's some controversy in the last couple years in the Christian world about a prominent Christian pastor who talked about... Uh, as he put it, unhitching the Old Testament oh, yeah. from the New Testament and the message of the gospel. I'm familiar with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and even, he said, the idea of not really appealing to the scriptures, to the Bible as an authority, uh, but rather speaking to people at the resurrection of Jesus. And look, I, I don't want to say the guy's a bad guy or anything, but I think he's really misguided. And to my perception, at least one of his errors is that he's thinking in that bare minimum kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you would say, well, is an understanding of the Old Testament 
or other doctrines, is it essential to somebody going to heaven? You have to say, well, no, it isn't. Right. But is it essential for discipleship? Uh-huh. Yes, it is. Yeah. And that's what God has called us to do. Yeah. Not just make converts, so to speak, but make disciples. Right. And if we unhitch that from the authority of God's word, then on what basis are we telling people to be following Jesus? I mean, part of discipleship is teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And if you don't know what he's commanded you because you're not believing the scriptures, then that's a problem. One of the things that uh, I'm hoping to address in in future shows, last week I talked about the existence of God, but another issue I think is just as important that is greatly attacked and needs to be defended today is the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of scripture. Because if you have... Those two foundations, then the rest, R.C. Sproul says, then the rest is just exegesis. So if you have the authority of Scripture and you have the existence of God, then, okay, well, let's obey God and let's see what He wants us to do. So can you give a little bit of a defense for the biggest argument against the Bible is it's a book that was written hundreds of years after the fact, not by contemporary eyewitnesses. How do you counter that? Well, I don't think... I can objectively prove by empirical evidence that the Bible is the God-inspired words of deity. I I believe that that is something of a step of faith. Hmm. But I do believe we can empirically prove that it is absolutely the most unique, powerful, influential book of all human history. I mean, that's that's just empirical data. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we can have a confidence in the Bible and an interest in the Bible through purely secular empirical measuring points. And I believe that going to the Bible with that understanding and with true intellectual integrity will lead us to a confidence in it as the inspired Word of God. I mean, what, one of the most important marking points is that we're not denying the human element in the Scriptures. That is, that it was written by men. It was written by men, and it was written through the personality of those men. Mm-hmm. You know how it is. When you read the writings of John, you recognize that's John's writings. Yeah. You know something of the personality of Paul. You know something of the personality of Isaiah, of David. So we we get those things. We're not saying that God used human beings as robots, but that God was speaking in them and through them in a greater way so that the words are actually the word of God. Now, when we leave that idea of the inspiration and the inerrancy of God's word, then it's basically up to me as the reader or the interpreter, Mm -hmm. to decide what's of God and what's not. And as soon as I do that, then I'm the authority, not the Word of God. That's a problem. (laughs) Well, yeah, it certainly is a problem, because I'm the one who's there to declare what is God's Word and therefore to be obeyed or observed or honored, and things that I don't think are worthy of that, I can just cast aside. How do you counter those who are undermining the reliability of Scripture— by saying, basically, they are making themselves judges of the Scripture. Well, yeah, they're going to they're gonna sit in the place of deciding, of picking and choosing, this is inspired by God, this is not. I don't know if you ever heard of something called the Jesus Project. 
Yes. The Jesus Project was some guys that got together and they decided that they were going to go through the Gospels and they were going to decide what was actually something that Jesus said and what he didn't say. And so basically they, they would vote on every little section of Scripture. And they would vote, you know, I think one of four ways. Uh, absolutely Jesus did say it. Mm-hmm. Maybe he said it. Maybe he didn't say it. Absolutely he didn't say it. And they would just go through and they would use actually different colored beads to signify these votes. And, you know, okay, here's this passage and guys would cast in their beads and then they'd come up. And they actually came out with a multicolor Bible according to the color of those beads to say, really? okay, these are the things that Jesus actually, we know he said, maybe he said this, maybe he didn't say this, we absolutely didn't know. Well, the thing is, is that th- there is no textual evidence for mm-hmm. what they did at all. Mm-hmm. These are guys just making up their own minds, their own opinions, clearly sitting in judgment over it. Now, the fascinating thing about that, Brent, is you know how this works, is um, if I'm in the place of deciding what is truly God's word and what isn't, I am invariably going to construct a God that somehow agrees with me yeah. on all these important issues. <laughs> you pick and choose yeah, what you and like. And especially regarding my pet sins. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to have a God that, you know, somehow finds those things okay. Everyone is viewing the same evidence, the same manuscript evidence, but viewing it through their presuppositions. Do you ever talk about that? Well, absolutely. And so to the best of our ability, and we understand it is an imperfect ability, but to the best of our ability, we need to set those things aside and come to the text and let the text itself show us what's true and what isn't true about it. You know, when I'm in theological controversies or disputes with people, I try to keep a very open mind to the idea I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I'm not just going to lay down in the debate or the controversy. My attitude is I might be wrong, but you're going to have to show me from the scriptures where I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And if you can point out biblical evidence that I have ignored, that I've neglected, that I've misunderstood, and make it clear to me where I'm wrong, then I, I, I would appreciate it because yeah. I, I want to believe yeah. what the Bible says and what it teaches, not just what I've inherited from my tradition. Yeah, because we want to know the truth. It's not just about maintaining a, a tradition. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah, God's Word is truth. So ultimately, I think one of the best reasons to accept the Scripture as reliable and inspired and written by the people who the Bible purports it was written by is because of Jesus, right? He quoted from the Pentateuch and said, Moses said this and confirmed the authorship. So am I going to believe the German critics from 200 years ago or current critics that are picking and choosing the Bible, or am I going to pick to believe in Jesus who says this is the Word of God and lived by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Therefore, if we believe in Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, we can believe in every word, verbal, plenary inspiration of all Scripture. And you know, that that verse is very meaningful to me, what Jesus said, quoting from the Old Testament, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because I think that practically speaking in the world today, there are a, a lot of bread alone people And there's even a fair amount of bread alone believers. To be honest, they Mm. live their life purely on a material realm. The only thing that interests them are the material things 
the bread they put into their mouth, the car they drive, the house they live. Now, mm-hmm. I, I do think it's very important to point out that God is concerned. God cares about the material things. We do live by bread. Mm-hmm. We just don't live by bread alone. alone. Right. And, and we neglect to our own detriment the riches, the grace, the goodness of the Word of God that just, as you point out very well, that Jesus himself attests to. Yeah. So since that's true, we don't live by bread alone. And there are lots of people here in California. It's, I was surprised when I moved back from the mission field of Europe how much America is catching up to the post-Christian Europe in terms of secularism on the rise. Yes. Church attendance is much lower here in Northern California. Uh, I think I sent you the statistic. San Francisco down to San Jose is the number one least churched area, uh, or de-churched, unchurched, according to Barna. 50% of people here in Monterey haven't been to church in the last six months. San Francisco, it's like 60%. And I found a statistic for where you're at. Santa Barbara is uh, the second highest never-churched population in America. Did you, know, did you know that? I did not know that. I do know that we made, again, according to a Barna survey and whatever their precise calculations are, we were in the top 10 of most post-Christian communities in the U.S. Yeah. So this is a mission field. This Absolutely it is. Yeah. And it's great opportunity. I mean, Christians shouldn't be depressed and down about this because, mostly, we understand that just as Christianity flourished in a pre-Christian environment Mm -hmm. of the Roman Empire of the first century, uh, so we can very much flourish in a post-Christian, which we would say, let's just regard it as another pre-Christian environment. You gave a great talk on uh, revival, J. Edwin Orr, and some of the history of American revivals that have happened. And it can go from one generation denying the Lord to the next generation coming back to faith. This is as happened in the Jesus movement. A large number of the young people that were disenfranchised ended up getting saved. So maybe we can end on, the, on a note of hope. Yes. Uh, how are you praying? How, how can we pray for God to move again in California to reverse this trend? Well, I think we do. We pray for genuine revival. And if people want to know what genuine revival is like, I really recommend going to the website jedwinor.com uh, to see the life, the teaching, the ministry of the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. Man, that's the best education I could recommend to anybody about what biblical revival is about. Yeah. Again, that's jedwinor.com. Now, what do we do? Well, we pray. We pray mindful of what biblical revival is and ready for it. But in the meantime, we're just about our Father's business. Mm -hmm. We look to evangelize whatever open door God gives us to do. We look to speak to who we can about Christ. We seek to be preachers and learners of God's Word. So we pray, we hope, we look, but then we're about our Father's business in the meantime. And I, I'm very excited to hear about how God is using your efforts in radio and, and in other means of, of broadcast. I think this is a wonderful thing. God gives us opportunities for a lot of platforms today, and I think we should be using the very best we can. It's a pleasure to be a part of this with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the Dwell on Truth show. You're very welcome. Thank you. Definitely check out Pastor David Gusick's content. Uh, he's produced media himself, from videos to audio 
through the Bible commentaries at blueletterbible.com, at enduringword.com. So check out Pastor David and Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. Is your coffee spilling out of your cup holder every single morning when you're pulling out of your driveway? We can help with that. A lot of people have root damage in their driveways that can make a trip hazard. There could be large potholes. The drainage set up on the driveway cannot be right. Yeah, we can fix all that. Top grade paving is licensed, bonded, and covered under Workman's Comp. I'm Robert. 408-455-8723. That's 408-455-8723. 408-455-8723. Good Sunday morning. You're listening to Dwell on Truth. My name is Brenton Powers. I'm the host of Dwell on Truth, which is a missionary media ministry. Dwell stands for discipleship, worship, evangelism, loving God, and loving people. And so one of the people that I love and has been a big encouragement to me is Manny Colazzo, Pastor Manny. Welcome, Manny. Hey, Brenton. It's great to be here. Very good. Glad that you were able to find time to come over today and talk. Oh, yeah. It was perfect, man. Great timing. I think I first met you while you were the youth pastor at Calvary Monterey 20 years ago. Yeah, you were a a good friend of my brother-in-law, Daniel Phillips. Mm -hmm. And I think I remember in your story somehow he was the one you guys met at the junior college or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a Christian club on campus and he was there and he said he goes to Calvary Chapel Monterey Bay. And I had heard about Calvary Chapel on the radio and I was like, there's one here, I've got to (laughs) go. Because I just loved the uh, verse by verse teaching and I was growing so much. I was a new believer. Wow. I'd only been saved for about three years at that point. I vaguely remember you and I didn't know that story till now. And I was so busy doing ministry and stuff like that. I had kind of my own circle of people that I was running with. Yeah. First time I heard you share was at a uh, abstinence uh, conference. Really? You went to that? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was a young single guy trying to figure things out. (laughs) Was it helpful? It was. Good. Yes. Your transparency and your heart and pointing to Jesus, it all was, it was hopeful. It gave me a lot of hope. Amen. Yeah, that's really what, you know, my life has been about, you know, since I've discovered my calling to ministry Mm -hmm. and... You know, it's just uh, bringing hope to people, the hope of the gospel, introducing them to Jesus or wherever they're at in their journey of faith, helping them take, you know, that next step. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that back in that day, before I even knew that, that, what I was, that that's what I was about and that's what I was doing, that that still held true back then. Yeah. Cool. Well, I look forward to asking you some questions about that, yeah. it, but I'll let you share what, what's on your heart. What would you like to talk about? One of the things I recently, as I've been looking at the state of the church in these final days and these days that are very chaotic and crazy, and I wonder if the church is prepared for what's ahead. Hmm. I've been a Christian for almost 30 years. Wow. Came to Christ when I was 17, and I've seen a lot, I've experienced a lot, and I wonder if the way we think about church and the way we quote unquote do church, mm-hmm. is it preparing the church? Is it actually producing what Jesus said should be produced? Mm-hmm. Jesus, when he first called his disciples to come and follow him, one of the things he told him, hey, if you follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Yeah, They weren't fishers of men at that time, but he was starting with the end in mind. Here's the end product. Here's where we're headed. Mm-hmm. This, this journey that we're about to embark on, the result should be that you will be a fisher of men. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah. So then you fast forward three years. They watch his life. They follow him. They look at him. They learn him. They mm-hmm. he goes to the cross, resurrects before he ascends. Mm-hmm. He now tells him, "Hey, now go, go make disciples of all nations. You know, baptizing them." So he said he's commanding them now: go make disciples. Go do what I told you at the beginning. Yeah. you would become. Go do that. Fishing for men is discipleship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in Acts chapter one verse eight, hey, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be empowered to do that thing mm-hmm. that I told you I would make of you. Uh-huh. You will be witnesses of me, these fishers of men, to go out into all the world and make disciples. So Jesus said, hey, that should be the result. He was talking to disciples yeah. to go make disciples. And so I've just become convinced that there is no such thing as a disciple who doesn't make disciples. Healthy sheep reproduce comes yeah. to my mind. That That's not a biblical phrase, but yeah. part of what Jesus commanded us to do is to teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And if he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, go into all the world, then that's something we should be passing on to the next disciple that we make so that they they too can obey that. And that disciple should be able to model what you've taught them and pass it on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, having been in ministry, youth ministry, senior pastoring several churches, is the church accomplishing that? Can we see that happening? Are the are the efforts, the resources, the money, the time, the facilities, the camp, is it producing that kind of disciple? You know, I've asked that question, you know, as I've, you know, even as a youth pastor, as a senior pastor, man, why don't I see more people doing this? Why is it, what's going on? What What's missing? Mm-hmm. There's, why is it that... It just seems like people are content to come and consume content. And yes, there is that growth phase of the Christian life mm-hmm. where you're receiving the word and you're growing in the word and you're, and you're being convicted and your life is changing, that process of sanctification. And not that that ever stops, but when do you become one who now is also passing on what has been given to you mm-hmm. so that they can do the same. Hmm. And so I feel like something happens. There's some, something There's some has sort of block. Block, uh-huh. yeah. Do you see that it is happening in some places, but maybe you're disappointed in the grand scale of doesn't seem to be happening enough or as much as maybe Jesus would have us expect? Yeah, I see it happening in some places. I'm painting with a broad brush here. I'm not yeah. necessarily saying right. every person is like this or every church is like this. Yeah. But I'm I'm of the conviction that if this is what Jesus told us to be about, then any church, the organization of the church, the institution church, should be focused at creating that kind of disciple, at making that kind of disciple, that those who gather, that our vision should be, hey, those of you, whether it's five people, 50 people, mm-hmm. 500 people, I'm going to use everything I can, all my resources, all my time to reproduce this in you so yeah. that you can reproduce in others. Right. I agree. I agree. So some churches are doing it, some churches are not, and I'm just real passionate about that. So, you know, that's what I do on my own, And but I also look for opportunities within the church that I'm at to pass on what, what God has given me. So Right on. Thank you for doing that, because if it wasn't for people like you and other men that was open to pouring into my life as a new believer, I would have probably never even got engaged in ministry. I would have wow. just kind of sat there and watched and mm-hmm. consumed like you do when you go to a movie yeah. or a sports game or whatever you cheer or... Mm-hmm. 
you laugh and then you move on. Yep. That was communicated to me pretty early on that God's given pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles and prophets for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So it's not just for the professionals to yes. do the ministry, but for the saints to yep. do the ministry. I, I think one of the one of the hang ups you, you might disagree with this, but I think is with an understanding of what disciple making means. Mm-hmm. Some people think that that happens. Okay, the person comes to Christ and they start believing in Jesus. And then immediately after that, that's when disciple making or discipleship, uh, spiritual formation Mm -hmm. begins to happen. After they're saved. After they're saved. Yes and no. (laughs) I think it can also happen before they even come to Christ. If they are not a disciple of Jesus, my engaging in their life is helping to make them a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. Well, that whole process that when I'm engaging somebody who does not believe in Jesus is something that once they do believe in Jesus and once they're ready to start discipling others, I have already modeled that for them. Here's yeah. how you talk to them uh, not an unbeliever. While they're still not born yes. again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, while they're still. Mm-hmm. And so I'm modeling for them what eventually they will be doing with uh-huh. others who don't know Jesus. Yes. And then there are others who come to Christ or who, who have already come to Christ. Uh-huh. And they're somewhere on their spiritual on the spiritual continuum of growth. Uh-huh. And my job is to make disciple. What? How does that look? I'm just here to take them to the next step, whatever that might look like. Right. You know. Yeah. I actually agree with that. Oh, you do? Yeah. I oh, do. cool. Yeah. I, sometimes we break it down, and evangelism is what happens first, and then after they're saved, then they're discipled. But to me, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg, which mm-hmm. comes first. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, God is the one who created the chicken, so we know <laughs> the answer to that question. But if the chicken is the disciple in this analogy, yes. the egg is the non-believer. Well, it's been forming. It hasn't hatched yet, yes. but you know, it's being reproduced from another chicken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so evangelism is like laying that egg mm-hmm. and you know sometimes you don't see it come to life. Yes. While you're watching it even yeah. it might, you know, spring up later, but it's still a chicken in there. If maybe yeah. I'm stretching the analogy too much, I like but it. I think both need to happen. Yes. You know, Jesus made the first disciples and they reproduce other disciples and I don't think it's good or healthy to separate discipleship from evangelism too yeah. much. Yeah. So in my mind, I haven't necessarily developed this but or anything, but I was discipled and I'm just imitating what the guy who discipled me mm-hmm. did. And he taught me a, this three-step disciple-making process. And there's there's three uh, titles, if you want. There's the gathering, growing, and going. Gathering, growing, and going. I want to uh, write that down. <laughs> so because I'm always on God's mission, I am his disciple and he has called me to be a disciple wherever I go in the everyday stuff of my life. Whether I'm working, whether I'm playing, whether I'm grocery shopping, no matter where I'm at, I'm on mission. It's not something I turn on and turn off. And so in the everyday stuff of my life, God opens up the opportunity for me to run into somebody who doesn't know Christ. I'm in this gathering phase. And the way I have conversations with people is trying to determine where are they at, you know, in, uh-huh. in, their, in their spiritual development. And when I discover that, I usually end up with a little short explanation of, hey, well, here's what I believe about mm-hmm. the gospel or here's what i believe about spiritual things 
Is that something you want to know more about? And if they say yes, then I consider them that low-hanging fruit that's ready to be picked and ready to take the next step. Yeah. And if they say no, I say, well, great. You know, no pressure on me. I, you know, I continue to befriend them, but I'm not. They're not quite ready. Yeah. If they don't want to know more about it, yeah. Then what's the use? And uh, you know, we're not going to be cramming anything down anyone's throat. Exactly. And the great thing about that question, do you want to know more, is that it encourages more dialogue, more conversation. If I sense that they're ready at that time, we, you know, I'll, I'll be more assertive and we'll go straight to seeing if they want to believe in the gospel, believe mm -hmm. in Jesus. Sometimes they don't, but mm -hmm. at least it encourages this ongoing conversation, a very uh, relational process. Yeah. And then we move into, if they accept Christ, we move into the growing phase. And yeah. You know, I meet with them weekly, sometimes more than others, and we study the Bible together, we read books together, we discuss life, basically saying, what does this gospel, what does following Jesus look like in the everyday stuff of your life? Mm -hmm. You know, I teach them how to read the Bible, how to do a little devotional, I, you know, how to lead a Bible discussion. I'm modeling it for them. They don't know that I'm modeling it for uh -huh. them as they're experiencing this. Sometimes it's caught rather than taught. Exactly. And as I'm doing, going through this life with them, we're, we're meeting weekly, sometimes in a formal way, sometimes informally, talking about the things of God and how does this fit into your life. And sometimes we don't talk about God. Sometimes we just talk about life mm -hmm. and how things are going and, you know, serving them and loving them, being this example of Jesus. At some point, though, they don't get stuck in that place of growing. Mm -hmm. constant Bible study and reading, at some point, if disciple making is really happening, they have to transition to the going, which is, hey, now you're ready to start doing what I did with you. Yeah. Do you remember that conversation when we first met? You might have not known this, but there was a process that I was taking you through. There was, and so now I begin to teach them what I did with them. Yeah. And every week I give them homework assignments. Hey, now go have that same kind of conversation uh -huh. that I had with you. Tried it this week and come back next week and we'll talk about it. Yeah. And then I'll do some coaching, do some, hey, go do it again. Go do it and we'll continue this relationship. And then even the way I teach them how to study the Bible is something that they will begin to do with others. Go have a Bible study with somebody. Remember how we did this Bible study? I begin to train them more in that going phase, mm -hmm. you know, to reproduce, hey, the very things that I've been doing with you, now you're going to begin doing with others. And then eventually, once they gain some confidence, some, tr some traction, it's time to fly the coop. There are the people I have to go fishing for. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's right. And now I've just multiplied myself, but my relationship changes. And now we don't necessarily meet weekly, but now I move more into a coaching, following up with them. Hey, where are you? Are you pursuing people? Are you staying on God's mission? You know, kind of pressing mm -hmm. them along to use the things that they've seen me model to make them their own. And and then eventually, hopefully, they gain some traction and some confidence that it just kind of ignites a fire within them. Yeah. So it's that gathering, growing, going. Good. Yeah, I wrote that down in a bunch of the things that you were saying there. You could ask that same question, is that something you want to know more about? Not only to people you're trying to gather, but as people are growing, yes. you want to know more about how to grow? Yeah, let me and tell you more about as, that. As people go from growing to going. Do you want to know more about going? Would you like to be prepared? To, yes. Because Jesus said, go. Are you ready? Or do you want to know more about yeah, that? Yeah, because some people don't need to be gathered. Well, I would still gather them to see if they want to engage in this kind of disciple-making relationship. But by gathering, do you also mean a church, being mm -hmm. part of a church yeah. or being the church? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
being part of a spiritual community. Not that we ever forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Mm -hmm. That includes that. Yeah. For example, I have a friend right now who I train with three times a week. I don't know if he'll ever go to a church. I'm just in the gathering phase with him. He's not even growing, but he's exploring. He's asking questions, just some good stuff, you know, is happening in his life. And if he never ends up attending, I would talk about that, but I'm okay taking him as far as he needs to go as long as I'm in his life. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's just the times that we have together studying the Bible and, yeah. but I, that would be something that I would always encourage. Hey, you need a community of believers. Discipleship doesn't just happen life on life, me with you, but disciple making also happens life in community. Yeah. Otherwise you'll end up looking just like me. I want you to look like Jesus uh-huh. and Jesus looks like the Holy Spirit in Brenton, the Holy Spirit in John, the Holy Spirit in Susie, all pouring into you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. To develop the image of Christ within you. Right. Not Manny Collot, not only me. <laughs> so. Yep, I can relate to that. The process you're describing, I'm thinking about a guy that I discipled in Latvia. Okay. I think he followed me for a while as I was street witnessing, and we'd have conversations before he got saved. And uh, he would hide in the bushes. <laughs> like <laughs> He's like, he didn't want his friends to see them with him, or him with me. And then uh, I spent a lot of one-on-one time with him, but he wasn't ready to come to church yet. Even as a new believer, he was like, okay, disciple me. Like, he'd read the Bible by himself, we'd get together and talk about it, but, uh, you know, circumstances were such that he had to go on the weekends to the countryside with his, help his parents in the farm. But I realized he needed more than just me discipling him, he needed to relate to his other brothers and Mm. sisters. Because uh, at first, it was an unhealthy thing where he got used to me just pouring into him. You yes. know, the Bible says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He needed an outlet. Yes. He needed other brothers and sisters that that he can minister to, that he can be a blessing to and get to know and just discover who he was in the context of church. Amen. So, when he finally got plugged in and, uh, you know, some things straightened out, it was, he became a very fruitful, oh, reproducing, yeah. growing goer. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's the great thing about communities. You know, you get the opportunity to practice the one another's of scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get to practice the one another's in scripture if you're only alone. You know, love one another, forgive one another, you know, serve one another. All those one another's commands, they're only done yeah. in community. And then you mentioned the, you know, the last piece with that guy. I think uh, another part that is important for a disciple to be made, is not just life on life, that one-on-one mm-hmm. life in community, but also life on mission. And so one of my favorite things to do with guys that I'm discipling is, hey, let's go. What is the mission that God has called us on? Let's do that together as a community. God mm-hmm. has a purpose for us. What is he? What does it look like in your life? Let's go do that together. Yeah. Let's see what that's going to look like, you know? <laughs> and to see their eyes open up and to them to get excited. I just had one guy tell me, man, I've, I've heard this all my life, but nobody's ever taught me how to do it. Yeah. I'm finally learning how to do it. Thank you, Manny. Yeah. And I don't know if we can learn the going part without actually going with someone Mm -hmm. who knows how to do it or has more experience. Because someone can stand in the pulpit and say, just give a great lesson on here's how you do it. Here's how you go. Now now go. Yes. But when you're out in the field and it's uh, things don't go according to the book, how you expect it to go, or how maybe you've heard missionary stories. Of, yep. You know, person goes here, and, and the guy believes, and then he witnesses to him fa- his family, and then they 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 start a church in their house. Well, that's that's one out of many stories. It doesn't always work out that way yes. instantly, and so the reality on the ground 
is that unless you have someone's kind of taking you by the hand at first, people feel like, oh, well, that wasn't as effective as I've heard it should mm-hmm, be. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm going to, I'm going to quit. I just, yes. you know, it's just, that's for somebody else. It's not my calling or gifting. Yeah. You know, leading people step by step, mm-hmm. not just teaching, but exemplifying. Um, amen. Amen. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what, um, that's what you see Jesus and disciples, the disciples doing. You know, they, uh, you don't ever see Jesus with a whiteboard behind him and the disciples all sitting in desks, you know, with their workbooks and pencils, you know, taken out being discipled. You know, it was life on life. You know, they ate together, they played together, they went around together, and all life was the curriculum. Hmm. And here's how you live my life, Jesus said, in the normal things. So go out two by two, or when I come down from the uh, uh, Mount of Transfiguration, you're trying to cast out this demon. Oh, you can't do it. Ah, let me tell you about prayer and fasting. Uh You know, know? so all those things were were part of the, you know, oh, you want to sit on my left hand and my right hand, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, we look at it and we romanticize it. But it was real life yeah. for them. They were just trying yeah. to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And many times they didn't get it. <laughs> yeah. It takes patience. So that's what fires me up. I mean, I love teaching. I love preaching. I can do that. I've had many years doing that. And I will continue to do that. I don't see any, I don't see that, the passion for that going away. Mm-hmm. But if you were to take that away and say, hey, all I want you to do is disciple people one-on-one, small groups, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. I'll run myself into the ground doing that. Do you feel like that's more effective as far as a way of reproducing than the lecture model? I think they both have their place and their purpose. For the point of making a disciple who will go make a disciple, yes, it's more effective. Yeah. The challenge with trying, if your way of making a disciple who will go make disciples is by standing behind the pulpit and preaching, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make a pulpiteer. Yeah. I'm not trying to reproduce a speaker, a communicator, somebody who is able to declare the word of God. And that's not the only way to teach. If that is the standard, there are many who will never right. be a disciple to me. So what I do is I try to teach them a way of teaching the Bible that's not preaching a sermon. You it's know? transferable. Yeah, that's repeatable. Yes, very transferable, simple, reproducible, memorable. Mm-hmm. And that way, of, I call it a discovery Bible study. Okay. And a discovery Bible study is very simple. It's, it doesn't require, you know, studying and preparing, you know, spending hours to prepare a good sermon is basically three to four questions. You read the passage several times, you close your Bible and you try to recite the passage or, hey, what was this passage? Mm -hmm. Just recite the passage, not for for memory, but what do you remember? What are the main points? You piece it together. And once you feel that you have a good understanding just off the top of your head, Mm -hmm. you ask, so what is this passage teaching us about God? Mm -hmm. What is it teaching us about what God is like, who he is, just the nature of God? What is this telling us about God? Mm -hmm. Second question, what is it telling us about man? about human beings. And you discuss that. You go back and forth talking about what is it telling you about God? How do you see that in the passage? Oh, wow, I see. Okay, yeah. What is it telling us about human beings? Uh-huh. So as we fuse those two things together, the answers to what is this telling us about God, and then the answer to what is telling us, as you put those two together, the next question is, so what should we do about that? If this is who God is, and this is what is telling us about us, that's the life application part. Right. How should we respond? What should we change? What tweaks should we make? Mm -hmm. What changes in our thinking should we make as a result of what we just learned about God, what we just learned about man? Mm -hmm. And the fourth question is my favorite. Who are we going to tell? 
Mm. What you just learned about God and man, this lesson that we've just had uh, in the Bible, you know, what you're going to do about it. Is there somebody in your life, as you think through your contact list on your phone, mm. is there anybody that God is putting on your mind that needs to hear this? And what's awesome about that question is you're already preparing that disciple yeah. to reproduce. Yeah. This isn't just for you. I think God gives us things always because he wants to work through us. It's good. Um, and then the following week when we connect, hey, how'd it go with that conversation? Oh, you didn't do it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Next week. you. Okay. You know? So this person will one day be equipped to carry on this simple, but yet some deep Bible conversations with those four simple questions. Yeah. What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about man? What should we do? And who are you going to tell? That last question is usually left out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, in inductive Bible study course, it usually ends with, what am I going to do about it? Uh-huh. That personal yes. application. Yes. You know, now that you're saying that, I think somewhere along the line, I caught that. No one taught me that. Yeah. But when I study the Bible, maybe it's because of my calling as an evangelist and missionary. When I look at a text, I think not only about how, how should I apply that, but what does that mean as far as what I should be teaching to others? Amen. Yeah. So, that, that way of Bible study, anybody could do that. Mm-hmm. Anybody could do that. Not everybody is is going to be preaching a sermon. Now, can I teach somebody how to prepare mm-hmm. and teach a sermon? Oh yeah. And if I if the young man or the young lady who I'm discipling is going to be doing that, then I'll go there with them. Well, let's learn how to put together a sermon. Mm-hmm. But not everybody's going to do that. And that's important. We're not we're not saying that we shouldn't equip uh, nope. the next generation of pastors. Mm-hmm. That's very it's very important. But I guess ministerial training, pulpiteers. I think you used that mm-hmm. word. Without the relational, reproducible discipleship experience is only going to reproduce pulpiteers. And it's not going to help the vast majority of people who aren't called to a pulpit. And you have to be a disciple before you become a pulpiteer. I think it was Spurgeon. He sent out his students to go preach in the highways and byways before he would even give them a pulpit. Wow. It's like, you're going to do it out there before you're, yeah, yeah. you know, you have the right to That's do it, it in the church. Like That's awesome. I like that. Cool. This is some good nuggets. Is there anything else you want to say on your heart before you have to go? Yeah. The culture in which the church of Jesus is existing in right now is very different. And the church in America has never had to exist in such a anti-hostile um, environment where you really, hey, keep that private, keep that quiet. Mm. And I think it's hard for people who do remember a time, which wasn't that long ago, where there was a good cooperation between local government and the church, where you could put on a concert, a big event, and people would want to come to it, and people mm. would hear your message. I just don't know that we live in, in a world where, at least here in America, that that is as acceptable and as popular. We say we're a country who might be founded on Judeo-Christian beliefs, but when you look at some of the decisions that are being made and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, the Constitution and all that might be, but, and so I, I think we need to, you know, the church needs to pivot and needs to adjust. Mm-hmm. And I think the hard thing, that the difficult thing is that the church isn't used to thinking themselves as missionary in their own country. They see themselves, oh, yeah, it's okay for you to make adaptations when you go out of the country. Yeah. But the church today needs to adapt. The church in America needs to adapt to the new culture here in America and see themselves as missionaries right here. Yes. And that's okay. That is not a compromise. Making the adjustments to the way you communicate the gospel, 
you would do that. You contextualize the gospel without compromising. The, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, today, the contextualization that's needed, I think the church, many within the church say, oh, you're compromising, you're watering it down. Mm-hmm. I don't see it as that. You're contextualizing it to the culture, and the culture has changed. I think this approach to disciple-making is, uh, I think, is still based in Scripture, but I think one that resonates with people in this culture. Very good. Yeah, thank you, Manny. Yeah. That's definitely given us food for thought. You're echoing a lot of things I like to share on my, my radio show. So, awesome. Uh, if people want to get information about you or meet up with you, how would people find you? The best way is I'm a pastor at Calvary Monterey. My email address is mannyc at calvary.com. They can email me. You can hit me up on social media, Facebook or Instagram. Just search Manny Colazzo. I also have a YouTube channel, oh. Manny Colazzo, and most of my sermons and stuff from wherever I've been have been are up there. So find me on YouTube as well. Subscribe and Okay, good. And uh, your devotionals that you've done uh, on uh, Calvary's social media have been yep. real encouraging. Awesome, so, awesome. Yeah, and I hope to have you back in my studio for another episode. I think we just kind of scratched the surface. We did, we did. You could be a regular guest around here with awesome. the way that you're talking about discipleship <laughs> and evangelism and the glory of God is Amen. really what it's all for. Amen. Thank you for your time and may God bless you. And would you mind closing in prayer? I wouldn't mind at all. Father, we thank you so much for this time and thank you for Brenton and giving me this opportunity, Lord, to talk about what you've done in me. God, I ask that you would use this for your honor and your glory. Mm-hmm. I also pray for Brenton, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill him, give him boldness, Lord, as he continues to venture out and follow your calling mm-hmm. upon his life, that you'd bless him, provide for him. And Lord, most of all, that he would sense your smile, your whisper to his soul. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. For more, go to dwellontruth.org.